Welcome, everyone. Uh, I just wanted to say uh, our last, uh, it's, it's been exciting. The, the most exciting thing that's come out of, uh, you know, working with the second principle of oneness is where we take change and we turn it into an ally, an opportunity. And so while uh, during this period of this crisis, we have had to do things virtually, uh, the wonderful thing about it is, is that, uh, you know, usually here in this dojo, you know, it fits so many people. But we get on average, usually by the end of the first evening, over well over 100 people that view and watch uh, and share our liturgy. Uh, and then, goodness, uh, last week, by the time, by two, two days had gone by, we had nearly 3,000 people. Uh, and, and by Saturday, we had had, you know, we had uh, nearly 4,000 people that uh, watched the talk and over 1,000 that watched the whole thing. So that's kind of exciting. I think that's worth mentioning. So thank you for that. So we're going to continue, at least uh, for the next period, we're going to continue uh, the format from my newest book, uh, which actually now is a little over a year old. Um, the Three Principles of Oneness, and the section in this book called As Sensei. So tonight's As Sensei. Dear Sensei Tony, this is Brenda. I was recently personally attacked on social media. How do I deal mindfully with a situation like this? I thought that was a really important one. So this reading tonight, to start our talk is from J.K. Rowling's uh, Harry Potter series and this is from the last work The Deathly Hollows and in, in this particular reading is a response of Albus Dumbledore uh, the great wizard and the headmaster at Hogwarts to Harry Potter and actually they're speaking in the next realm and it's a really cool, uh, if you watch the film, it's the, the Deathly Hallows Part 2. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful series. But I thought these words of, of Dumbledore's were very appropriate. <clears throat> this is Dumbledore speaking. I always prize myself on my ability to turn a phrase. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Capable of both inflicting injury and also remedy. <clears throat> so, when, when something like this comes up, uh, and I've addressed this sort of thing uh, before. It's really important to take the time to step back and breathe and look and observe. My old saying is to stop, look, and listen. That's my philosophy, quoting Elvis. And what our 
instinct is, you might say, our conditioning around our defensiveness of our ego self is that when someone attacks us, whether it would be on social media or it would be in person, uh, we go into a sort of flight, fight, or freeze mode. And a lot of that has to do with our personality, situation, circumstances. And there's a tendency for us, uh, more often than not, to respond back right away to, and rather, I, I wouldn't use the word respond because that's a good word to me. I would use the word react. And what people typically do once they're attacked or they believe they're attacked is they go right into the defense, man. They enter right into the fray. <laughs> and that while that might make entertaining watching, it's really not the most mindful approach in my opinion. So what I'm going to offer you is a potentially mindful practice when you are attacked. Because here's the thing, you will be attacked. If you're doing anything worthwhile, if you're really living freely out of your own personal expression, you're going to get attacked sometimes. It's going to happen. I, as a spiritual teacher and the leader of a spiritual community, believe me, I have been attacked. I have had people say very nasty things about me from time to time. Now, I'm glad that it's not very often, but it has happened. And I want to go deeper into why these things occur. But I will say this, that if no one has ever crossed you, you might want to question that. You might want to question that. And particularly when you're in a position like mine, people want perfection. They want people to be perfect, without stain, without blemish, like lambs to the slaughter. But I'll tell you what I've found. People that try to uphold this idea or this image of themselves being perfect or beyond reproach, Quite frankly, I find them completely boring as individuals and probably hiding a huge shadow. So that's the first thing I want to say. Don't be alarmed by being attacked. Don't worry about that aspect because if you're doing anything worthwhile, if you express yourself in any way, someone is going to disagree with you. So the first question we want to ask out of this, these teachings of oneness, where we no longer are separating ourselves from the other, why would someone attack Brendan? Why would someone attack me? Why would someone attack you? We have to ask that question from the perspective of oneness. And when we do that, there's no separation anymore. So instead of asking why would they attack, the question becomes, why would I attack someone? It's the bigger question of, why do people do this? Why do people take the time to do this? Even on our live streams, which go out all across the United States, Europe, and Canada, occasionally we'll get a few trolls on there that will say things that are quite nasty. So why do people do this? What's going on? 
Well, the simple answer is this. They're living out of the ego self-orientation. They have not awakened to their true self. And they're acting and reacting purely out of the instinctive defense mechanisms of their ego self. And they feel that they have, they're relying on the separation. They feel like they have a bit of a wall between you and them where they can say whatever they want with impunity. They can't, you know, they, you're not right there. In other words, it's one thing to say something and attack someone to their face, especially if that person is bigger than you and stronger than you, because they might whack you. So you're less inclined to do that. It's like people when they're in vehicles, when they're in their cars, they somehow believe that there's invisible, this invisibility cloak around them where they can do and act however they want. But this is never the case. When a person is acting out of their ego self and they're coming on to attack you, it's because whatever you're saying or doing, there's something in them. This is very important. There's something in them, in what we would call their shadow, that they're projecting onto you. Make no confusion about this. Whatever, whenever you are a target of someone, it is not about you. Even if they say it's about you, even if they make it about you, in reality, they are attacking something in their past. They're striking out at someone that hurt them. They're striking out at someone who made them feel different. So never, never be confused about that. That's a big lesson to learn because when someone attacks us personally, we take it personally. But trust me, my experience, my insight has shown me it is never the case. It's never really about you. So that's the first question. Why do people do this? Why do I do this? Have you ever attacked anyone? We all would like to say that we're good little lambs. We've never done that sort of thing, which is BS, because anybody of any age, whether when you're a little kid or you're an adult, has done this. Sometimes as you get older, you know, and you have good manners, you just don't do it in public, or you don't do it to their face, but you'll sure as heck do it behind their back. So the fact of the matter is, is that we've all done this sort of thing. We've all attacked people. We've all made it ad hominem. And that's one of the problems with our popular culture today. People don't really debate subjects anymore. They don't really talk things out. And of course, you can make the argument, was it ever though that way? Has it always been this way? But I think it's a little different now. I do. And I'll tell you this too. If you're ever in a debate with someone, you're ever in an argument with someone, and they start to make ad hominem attacks on you, they've lost. The minute they begin to do that, they've lost their argument. Because that means they got nothing else. So they got to come back at you. And they sound just like little kids. 
So remember that. So the next question, why do we feel badly about it? Why should it matter to us that someone would say something nasty about us, make an accusation about us? Why should that bother us? What is it we're trying to protect? Well, the answer to that is very easy. We're trying to protect our ego self's identity. When we feel attacked and we feel that, oh, believe me, you, I'm a fighter. I love fighting. I was a young guy. I loved to fight. And yes, I also fought professionally in martial arts, but I also like fighting outside the ring. I still enjoy it. There's nothing more than I love a good argument, a good debate. Baby, I dig it. I love it. I'm actually sometimes more comfortable in that realm than I am in the peaceful equanimity realm. So I get it. I understand. But the fact of the matter is, if we feel attacked and it hits us hard, it's because of one thing going on within us. And that is, we are not oriented from our true self, but we're being oriented from the ego self. Because when we're oriented from the true self, here's something, here's, a, here's there's certain, I wouldn't make it a litmus case, but there are certain signs that you can see of someone who's enlightened or awakened. They really don't feel the need to defend themselves. Why? Because they're not living out of that fragile ego self. They're living out of their true self. So when someone attacks them, they know that it does not affect their worth or value. It does not affect their sense of self-estimation. So there's nothing that anyone can say that will disturb the unconditioned. So it's very important to understand that, that that's why we feel bad about it. Because we're living proud of the ego self. And like I said, don't hear this as I'm perfect and I... I do this, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, walking around like three feet off the ground. Quite the, quite the difference. Someone attacks me, believe me, you, my first instinct is to go on into the battle gladly. But that's when I'm coming from my ego self. Because I'm coming out of a sense of separation from and the realization of the other two things I just mentioned is not there. So that's why it's always good when something like this happens to you, that you stop, step back, <laughs> take a breath, take a beat, allow that true self to come and take over the captain's chair of your psyche. All right, so what can we do dealing with all right here's there's the insight there's the view the knowledge the wisdom well the first thing I do and this is something that some people may not find useful and as I always say to everyone everything I say is my opinion man and if you dig it and you find it useful use it if you don't forget about it. use whatever is useful to you but here's the things that I try to practice. The first thing is, 
I invoke my protector. Yes, I do. I invoke my protector all the time. In the Buddhist tradition, there is the belief, by some, by all the old classical ones, that there are beings called Dharmapalas, and that these beings are protectors of those who are practicing the Dharma. And sometimes they look very scary. And in fact, the email that I sent out to the Sangha, I sent a, a photo of a Tonka, of one of the greatest primary Dharmapalas, the great Mahakala. And I do. I invoke my protectors as a regular part of my practice every day. Now, what does that mean? I don't fully know and understand what that means. Do I believe that that pro provides me some sort of spiritual protection? Honestly, I do. I do. Now, that doesn't mean I won't be attacked, and I don't know to the extent in which that spiritual protection surrounds me, but I believe it. I've seen it. And you can invoke it too. And if nothing else, even if you didn't believe that there are Dharmapalas, the first thing that that does, just like the opening of our sacred space, is it creates a protective space, a place where we can be free to be ourselves, free to live fully, love freely, and give completely. So even if you do not believe in Dharmapalas, Invoke, invoke them as the nature of your own mind. And I often will do this by chanting a mantra. The mantra I typically chant is Namo Fudo Bosa, which is the one we use to open up here. Fudo being the Japanese name for the Dharmapala. And what's cool about that is even the word mantra, which I will chant when I invoke the Dharmapala, mantra itself, that very word means to protect the mind. Mantra means to protect the mind. So that's the first step. Invoke your protector. I always throw out a little bit of mudra too. The next thing I do is I invoke what I call the five spiritual bill of rights. <laughs> I came up with this last year spontaneously in a conversation with someone I was counseling. And so here they are. The first spiritual bill of right you have is this. You have the right to remain silent. Because everything you say will be used against you. I guarantee it. So something, sometimes the first and best thing you can do is invoke your right to not say anything. Now this is hard to do if you're coming from the ego. But if you're coming from the true self-orientation, it's easy. It's easy because there's nothing to defend. You know that no one can touch you. No one can diminish you. 
by the things they do or say. And ultimately, you always want people to always like you, right? Think you're a great person, but you have no control over that. And when you're coming from that true self-orientation, you care what people think, but only to the degree that you like to have a sense of connection with folks. But when that's not possible, it doesn't tear you down. It doesn't destroy you or devastate you. So sometimes the right to remain silent is the best response. Secondly, you have the right to express yourself. That's, if, if, if the Dharma is about anything else, it's about freedom. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if someone's teaching you something and they call it Dharma, and you don't feel a little freer from hearing it, you don't feel more liberated from practicing it, then it ain't Dharma. Because the Dharma, oh, I don't care what school it comes from, what version of it you get, it all has the same taste. In fact, the old ancient masters used to say, no matter, no matter where you're at in the world, seawater tastes salty. And likewise, no matter where it's coming from, the Dharma always tastes like freedom. So you have the right to express yourself. Now, how you do this from an awakened place is a matter of skillful means. And one of the easiest ways to kind of explore how you would do this is something that the Buddha taught, one of the versions of the Dharma, which is the Eightfold Path, and it's called Right Speech. Now, what is Right Speech? Well, there's lots of ways we can talk about it. But ultimately and simply, Right Speech is being mindfully aware of what your intention is. It's mindfully being aware of what your intention is when you respond. So in other words, if you did respond back, and you go back and attack them the same way, you're free to do that. That can be fun. I like fighting. It can be fun. But it won't accomplish the intention of connection. So you have the right to do that. Here's the thing. There's no law here. There's no lawgiver. There's no, there's no, you know, superpower out there waiting to punch you or hit you because you do something wrong. Doesn't exist. There's no judgment. So you're free to do whatever you want. But if your intention, if you're coming from an awakened, awakening place of awakening to the oneness of all life, then you're coming from a place of connection. Now that doesn't mean you can't be clever. That doesn't mean you can't argue your side of things. But more than likely, your intention will guide you in a way that's more skillful. So when you express yourself, when I try to express myself, which I'm doing right now, I'm mindful to try to be skillful in what I'm saying so that what I'm saying will connect with you, not turn you off. What's the point? I'd rather be watching a movie, having a cigar. I wouldn't be doing this. I do this because I want to connect. I want people to experience the same clarity that I have. 
So that's the right to express yourself. The next one, the third one, is the right to believe whatever you want. <laughs> you can believe whatever you want. Today there is this culture of where if you don't believe certain things, then people want to shun you. It's a very old practice. Very old practice. Uh, there's great books read about it, wrote about it, like The Scarlet Letter. You know, that's what people like to do. They, they want to separate you, you see. That's their insane way of feeling like they'll belong to some group. So they must shun you. Shame. Shame for having an opinion that's not mine. And there are great powers out there who will try to do that to you. I have to be honest with you, sometimes just for fun, I'll take the opposing view, even if I don't really believe it. I used to joke that that was one of my favorite parlor games when I would go to some kind of party or gathering, and people would start talking about God, let's say. And if everybody there was a believer, I'd come across like I don't believe in God. And if everybody there was an atheist, I'd come across like I was a true believer. You know, be a little bit of that agent provocateur. Now, I wasn't doing it just to play with people. I was doing it to try to open people up to the fact that the only way sometimes that you get at the truth is by wrestling with it. I don't believe the truth stands up there on some hill shining like a beacon. I believe the truth is dirty. The truth is right here in the warp and woof of, the, of what our lives are. And we have to wrestle with it. Because it's never constant. In my opinion, truth ultimately is heuristic. It's what will bring about the greatest sense of connection, the greatest sense of clarity, the greatest sense of compassion. And that will feel like freedom. But you have the right to believe anything you want. Now, in line with that, with right speech, there's what's called right view. And right view, simply put, just like there was a simple understanding for right speech, right view is seeing things from the perspective of the three principles of oneness. That's the Buddha's opinion. That when you see things from the three principles of oneness, you have the right view. So that right view is going to guide what you believe. And what you believe will guide what you think. And what you think will guide what you feel. And what you feel will guide how you act. And how you act will cause consequences. And that will keep a nice little nasty loop going. Especially if your view is one of separation. That'll make this world a wheel of samsara, a wheel of suffering. But you have the right to believe whatever you want. I come at things from my own experience, from the three principles of oneness. I don't believe that that's something arcane or mysterious. I think it's something that anyone can discover if they really want to. And it doesn't even have a Buddhist label. It's just the way things are. Fourth, 
you have the right to privacy. This is a really important one because I think today because of us being so looped in through things like social media, and again, these things in themselves, there's nothing wrong with them, it's how they're used. You have the right to privacy. There is a tendency today for everybody to feel like they gotta be transparent. You hear that a lot, right? Well, transparency, that's, that's a value I really hold. Well, I don't. I don't hold transparency as some kind of virtue. There are things that are none of your bloody damn business. Now, I have no obligation whatsoever to tell you, even in a court of law. I have the right to remain silent. And I have the right to privacy. You don't have the right to know everything. Now, here's the, here's the crazy part, right? Because of social media, that's what everybody's getting conditioned to do, right? I, I saw this joke the other day. I shared it with my wife. And this, this person on, on Facebook has these funny memes. And she said, hey, you know what? I tried to do what I do on social media in public. And she said, so I just went up to lots of strangers and I showed them pictures of what I ate that day. And I showed them pictures of all my family and what I was doing that evening and, and all my personal opinions and judgments. And if they liked me, then, then I gave them a thumbs up. And if they disagreed with me, I canceled them. I'm no friends with you anymore. You disagree with my opinion. How dare you? Good God. I grew up in a fundamentalist religious background where that's what they did. They shunned people. They canceled people. They put their little scarlet letters on them. Dear God, we're right back at it. And now it's the whole bloody culture. At one time, you could segue it off to those religious nutbags. <laughs> Not anymore. You realize the religious nutbags is the whole bloody society. You can never replace religion. We are homo-religious. Say you're homo sapiens. I think we're homo-religious. We'll make a religion if it doesn't exist. God help us if our religion has no grace and only judgment. So you have the right to privacy. So, you know, practice that a little bit. You know, maybe you shouldn't be so transparent. Or if you're going to show everybody what you do all the time, sometimes people aren't going to like it and they're going to disagree with you. So accept that. Accept that, you know, and that's that whole barrier thing, right? That false barrier, that phony barrier. If you're going to say something or do something, imagine saying it to their face in public. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, I don't really care what you eat for dinner. I don't even really care that much what you want on vacation. And honestly, I don't even really care that much what your opinion is. I've got my own opinion. And if your opinion is different from mine, hmm, that's interesting. I'd love to have a debate about it. I'd love to learn more. So you have the right to privacy. And it's like I said about spiritual leaders, how you want them to be oh, perfect and stainless and, and blemishless, you know, oh, like the little lambs. So you can project your, your father issues and your God issues onto me. Forget it. I'm not interested. I'm not interested.
And if that makes me less popular, or maybe I have fewer people that follow me, so be it. I'm not playing that game with you or anyone else. And neither should you. In whatever way it is in your world, neither should you. Be yourself. You can do that mindfully, with right speech, right view, right action. But be yourself. Be yourself. And lastly, the fifth, you have the right to defend yourself. Now, I know you might think that that contradicts everything I just said. <laughs> no, that's not true. Just like you have the right to believe and the right to say whatever you want, you have the right to defend yourself. I personally am not a pacifist. I don't believe in pacifism. I don't believe Buddhism is a pacifist path. If it was, it wouldn't attract me. People seem to forget that Buddhism was the origin of martial arts. All those temples in the Shaolin Mountains. Oh, yeah. All those pine tree temples. That's where martial arts began. That's where Kung Fu began. Right? So, Buddhists are not pacifists. We're nonviolent in our intentions. What does that mean? So, this is what I mean when you have the right to defend yourself. You start with, again, intention. It's all about intention. For us, it's all about intention. And my intention is twofold. Number one, I believe I have the right to protect myself. I have the right to protect those that I love and care about. And anybody knows me, you're out with me, something goes down, I'm going to try to protect you. I've spent my life studying martial arts, so I would be quite good at it. But my intention is to stop conflict, not create conflict. So when I think of defending myself, or I think of the right to defend myself, I think of it in those terms. My intention is to stop conflict, not create it, not cause it. And ultimately, my intention is to be a peacemaker. I want to bring things together. I want to make them whole, make them more. I want them to, to realize the inherent oneness because I know that that peace always exists. I just have to help remove the conflict. And that's true within myself and that's, that's true within others. So you have the right to defend yourself. You don't have to be a pacifist, but just like everything else here, your right action from a Dharma point of view is have the intention of stopping conflict and being a peacemaker. Now, stopping conflict, you know, if I'm in a situation where somebody is attacking someone that I love, you know, I may have to go in there and, um, you know, deal with it. Now, I'm going to try to do that without trying to hurt them bad. My intention is not to cause any harm. So even when I stop a conflict, even in a hand-to-hand -hand situation, my intention is to do it with as little force as I have to. But make no mistake, I will try to stop the conflict. So you have the right to defend yourself. And I would say, 
and, and wrapping this up, that if you don't start from a place of strength in this, if you don't start from that orientation of the true self, the view of oneness and those principles, it's going to be very hard to do anything I mentioned. Because you're going to be living out of your little ego self that's a little afraid, thinks it's alone in this little skin bag, and it's a big cool universe out there. And so every time anybody attacks you, you're going to run away and cry, or you go back and belt them. Because that's what the ego self knows how to do. That's how you've survived. That's how our species survived. But the wondrous news is that that's not the whole story. That's not the whole story. We have the capacity to live life. That's the real miracle.